Father, we love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you that we can worship you, that we can boldly go to your throne, Lord, at any time, that the veil in the temple was torn, that we can rush, Lord, into your grace, into your mercy, into your loving arms, Lord. And we thank you that you hear our prayers. Lord, we thank you that you comfort us through the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we have hope, the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we do not weep as the world weeps, Lord, that we can rejoice, as your word says, at all times. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. So, Lord, we rejoice in you today, no matter what we're going through. And we pray, Lord, right now that you would prepare our hearts for your word, that the word would penetrate deeply, that it would encourage us, that it would strengthen our faith, that it would edify us, Lord, and where we need rebuke and correction, Lord, may it do that as well. So unify this fellowship, Lord. Help us to be like a city on a hill, a light in the darkness, Lord. Use us for your glory. Help us to be your hands and feet. Speak through me, Lord. Help me to get out of the way that Christ may be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, the title of the teaching is The Testing of the Son. The Testing of the Son. Last week, we looked at The Giving of the Son. We focused on John 3.16. Lord willing, next week we'll be looking at the crucifixion in preparation for the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. This week I received a text message from a friend, a brother in the Lord back in California, asking me to pray for him. And he's been texting me from time to time, pray for me. He'll just send me a text, pray for me, and I'll seek the Lord. And he went on to say, quote, just tired, man. Asking what's the purpose in all my pain, you know. I, it doesn't stop. Don't understand why God allows so much when he saves someone. How do you respond back to that if a friend, a brother, a sister in the Lord texts you that? Where do you go if that's how you feel? Why the trials? Why the testing? Why the hurts? Why the pains? Why the struggles? Why do we go through all this as Christians? Is it meaningless? And of course, the answer is no. God is doing something in everything that we go through. He uses trying times for many reasons. Here's a couple. The trials cause us to cling to him. Perhaps we wouldn't cling to him all the more if we didn't go through certain things in life. God allows trials to make us holy. Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. Trials grow our faith. And God gives us trials. God allows us to go through trials so so that we can encourage one another so that we can speak into the lives of others who are struggling as well. And that's what I told my friend. That's what I told this brother. I said, you're able to speak into the lives of other Christians, other people in ways that nobody else can because you're going through these trials. That's one of the many reasons God allows us to go through suffering in this life, to comfort others who are going through suffering as well. God's doing a million and one things in the trials that we go through. Our prayer should be in the midst of them to entrust ourselves to his will and to say like Paul in Romans chapter five, verses three and four, Romans five, three and four, we also exult. What does it mean to exult? We rejoice to glory, to boast. We boast in our tribulations, Paul says, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance can be translated endurance and proven and endurance proven character and proven character hope and then he goes on to say because hope 
does not disappoint. Also Romans 8, 35 through 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Can anything, any of these things, can anything, he goes on to say, separate us from the love of God in Christ? Then he goes on to say, and he quotes Psalm 44, 22, just as it is written for your sake, for your sake, O Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But he doesn't stop there. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Hupernikao, the only time that Greek word is used in the New Testament. We overwhelmingly have victory. We overwhelmingly, we exceedingly conquer through him who loved us. And the question is, how do we overcome, how do we conquer when we're dying? Isn't that a contradiction, Paul? Tribulation and distress and peril and nakedness and sword like sheep to be slaughtered and yet we're conquering. Did Jesus conquer on the cross? Stripped naked, beaten, laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, crucified in the world's eyes, that's the lowest of the lows. That's not conquering in the world's eyes. That's defeat. Yet the Bible says that Jesus conquered on the cross. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death and he rose on the third day to prove that he was the son of God. And so we conquer through him. 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We conquer when we keep the faith through all the trials and tribulations that we go through in life. We conquer because of 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said, do not fear man who can destroy your body but cannot destroy your soul. Fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They can destroy our body. They can't destroy our soul. We conquer because the moment we die, we go into the presence of the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will reign with him. We conquer because we will go and reign with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32, it says, the Father has been pleased to freely give us all things. We conquer because we have all things in Christ. We've inherited everything in him in Romans 8:18 8, for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is be, that is to be revealed to us that's why we conquer we're going to gloriously reign forever and ever with Jesus Christ 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says we're going to judge angels don't you know that you're going to judge the world Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. It's all in Christ Jesus. It's all in him, his death, burial, and resurrection, and what he has in store for us. Some of us, we have tunnel vision. We're just too focused on the here and now, what's right in front of us. We lose the big picture. That's been my prayer lately. Lord, give me the big picture. Help me to have the big perspective. Help me to understand and apply all of your word in my life, not just what's right in front of me, family life, bills, trials, tribulations. God wants us to look beyond that, past that, at Christ and at eternity and what he has in store for us. We want to say like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.10, therefore, I am well pleased. I am content 
The word means I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The verse right before that says his power is perfected in weakness. If you remember, Paul prayed three times that the Lord would take this thorn from his flesh. Remove this thorn, Lord. We don't know exactly what that thorn is. We all have a thorn at times in our flesh. Three times Paul boldly prayed. What was the divine response? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So then Paul goes on to say, I'm well content. I'm, I take pleasure in weaknesses then. If God's response is that, your, that his grace is sufficient for me in this moment, and that power is going to be perfected in what I'm going through, then I will most gladly go through it. That should be our response as Christians. Lord, if this is the way that your power is made known through me, is, if this is how you grow my faith, is, if this is how you get the word of God out and the gospel out, then so be it. Your will be done. So we need to remember that key phrase, his power is perfected in weakness. What hero of the faith, read through the scripture, what hero of the faith was not made weak? Joseph was thrown into a pit, imprisoned for two years. Moses on the run for his life from Pharaoh in the wilderness. David was hunted down by Saul. Job lost everything. Jeremiah was ignored and mocked. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den. The prophet Zechariah, it says, was stoned in between the courts of the temple. Tradition states that Isaiah was sawn in two. That's just a short sample of the heroes of the faith. Many of them made weak, yet their faith grew strong. The book of Hebrews says, men of whom the world was not worthy. I love 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come among you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange when we go through trials as Christians. It feels like it in the moment. It shouldn't be strange, though, to us. He goes on to talk about rejoicing in your trials because when Jesus returns, then you can have the joy of keeping the faith. So the same book, the book of Hebrews, that holds up these heroes of the faith puts on the highest pedestal our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's on the top. He's called the author and perfecter of the faith. That word author can also be translated founder captain, leader. He's the leader and the perfecter of the faith. It's said of Jesus, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Because he was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 2.18 states that which I just quoted, He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The Greek word is pirazo, means to try, to tempt, to test. Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 2.18, both use that same Greek word. The one who suffered much and conquered much, more than anyone else in the scripture. He was tested he was proved. The same Greek word, pirazo, it's used in 1 Corinthians 10.13. You guys have heard this verse, no temptation has overtaken you, 
but such as is common to man and God is faithful, he'll not be, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with each temptation he will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. It's a tongue twister. There's always a way of escape. There's always a way out. There's always that path that leads to righteousness. Christ is always there reaching out to help in time of need. Pirazzo, to tempt, to test, to try. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself, pirazzo. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Do Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Paul shares that with the Corinthian church who needed to test themselves. Who knows if many of them were in the faith because of all the sin that they took part in. I've talked about that before. I don't believe that Christians test themselves in that same way. Every day going, am I in the faith? Am I not in the faith? I'm testing myself again today. I I did better yesterday at Bible reading. Today I didn't do as much. Am I in the faith or am I out of the faith? No, but if you have day after day, week after week sin in your life, practicing sin, you need to test yourself. If you call yourself a Christian, Paul's saying examine yourself, try yourself. Are you even in the faith? Because First John says we must walk in the same way Jesus walked. If you claim to follow Jesus, you should be walking in his footsteps. Now sometimes we step on a rock. Sometimes we stub our toe. Sometimes we fall over. We get right back up, though, if we're Christians. We repent, we turn, and we keep following him. Could Jesus come to our aid? Could he help us? Could he minister to us? Could he be the great high priest? Could he be our sinless lamb of God? if he didn't pass all the tests of life that came his way? And the answer, of course, is no. He proved to be the Son of God. He proved to be pure, holy, perfect, without blemish because of the tests that came his way, and he passed them all victoriously, perfectly. How do you test pure gold? If you have some metals lying around your house, if you guys have gold, I don't think I have any at home. My wife would know. We have some silver. How do you test gold? You put some. You can you can do the acid test. You can drop some nit- nitric acid on a metal, and if it turns green or turns different colors, you know that's probably a fraud. It's a fake. If you put it on gold, it's untarnished. Nothing happens, at least according to an article I read. Also, pure gold, it states, is indestructible. It will not corrode, rust, or tarnish. Fire cannot destroy it. Sounds like our faith, right? At least that's how it should be. When the trials of life, the testing of life, the nitric acid of life, so to speak, the fiery trials that come our way, what's God doing? He's seeing if it's pure gold. He's seeing if your faith is real. He's showing the world and the angels, Christians around you. Is that faith real? First Peter 1.7, that the proof, the tested genuineness, of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going through that refiner's fire as believers. What's going to remain? Those impurities are being cast aside. If we're truly in the faith, what remains is gold, the true faith in Jesus Christ. So the writer to the Hebrews then implores us in Hebrews 4.16, 
Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and and may find grace to help in the time of need because Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Because he passed the test, we can run right into his throne. He's right there to help us. He intercedes for us. So today as we're looking at the topic of the trying of the son, the testing of the son, our model, our example for the trials that we go through in life in preparation next week for the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ, I want to turn our attention to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Jesus was tested early on in the faith. It's mentioned in the Gospels. It's mentioned in Matthew chapter 4 after his baptism. It says the Spirit led him into, th- into the wilderness to be tested, pirazo or parasmos, to be tested by the enemy. See, the enemy tempts us to sin. God tests us to reveal our true faith. And so there, the enemy tested Jesus. 40 days without food. What's the first test that the enemy brought his way? If you're truly the son of man, turn these stones into bread. And if you know the story, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Three tests the enemy brought him brought his way, brought him up to the pinnacle of the temple. Worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Bow down, fall on your face, worship me. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus quoted scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. You're not going to pass the tests that come your way in life if you don't know scripture. If you're not hiding God's word in your heart. The psalmist knew this very well. Psalm 119. How does a young man, how does a young woman keep their way pure? By keeping it according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6. The word of God. Meditate on it. Dwell on it. Read it. Share it with others. Pray through it. The enemy is going to do whatever he can to get you and your eyes and your mind and your heart off of his word. It's a daily struggle. It's easier to go on your phone. It's easier to watch a movie, play games. Whatever it may be, it's going to be much easier because the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so we need to beat down our bodies like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. We need to make it our slave as he says. And we need to dig into God's word. Make it a habit, a daily habit to discipline ourselves, to meditate on his word. It's the only way to grow in the faith. It's the only way to truly pass pass these temptations in life that come our way. So, after the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples, it's where Jesus broke the bread, gave them the cup. He said, partake of this bread. This is my body, which is given unto you. He instituted communion at the Last Supper, so he broke the bread. They ate, gave them the cup, symbolizing his blood. The text tells us in Matthew 26, they sang a hymn, and then they crossed over the Kidron, and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18.2 tells us that Jesus often met with his disciples at this place. Luke 21:37 says during Jesus's ministry he would often teach in the temple during the day and then at night he would go to the Mount of Olives. Luke 22:39 tells us that this was his custom to continually go to the Mount of Olives. And that's where the garden was located at the base of the Mount of Olives right outside the city gates of Jerusalem. 
And then John 18.1 tells us the garden was over the ravine. So after this last supper, John doesn't, he doesn't give us the whole story, the whole time where Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane. We see that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, he gives us the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, where it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes and his hands to heaven and prayed that high priestly prayer. That happened right before Jesus went to the garden because in John 18.1 and 18.2, it tells us then Jesus entered the garden with his disciples. The next thing we know, Judas is there. So John doesn't elaborate. That's the word I was looking for. He doesn't elaborate on what happened in the garden of Gethsemane. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. So, last week we looked at several examples of typology in the Old Testament when we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the giving of the Son. We looked at Numbers chapter 21, if you remember. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Nicodemus, if you remember, John 3, 14 and 15, leading up to John 3, 16 probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that all who believe in him will be saved. Typology all throughout that story that we looked at last week. We looked at Genesis 22 and how Isaac was taken by his father Abraham. Abraham said, my son, my only son, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, And I don't want to go into all that again, but just a quick recap. Isaac, of course, is a picture of Jesus who carried the wood on his back, just like Jesus carried the wood, the cross on his back. Isaac went up to that same mountain, Mount Moriah, where Jesus was later crucified thousands of years later. And if you remember, Isaac cries out, my father, where's the sacrifice? As we're going to see right now, Jesus cries out, and I talked about last week, my father. He's pleading with the Lord as he's getting ready to go to the cross. And so the typologies are just rampant throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in those two stories, Numbers 21 and Genesis 22, really show us in detail, in detail what happened on the cross and the giving of the Son. But isn't it fascinating that the first temptation in the Bible is where? In the garden. In the garden of, I was going to say Gethsemane, in the garden of Eden. It means the garden of delights, the garden of pleasure, the garden of paradise. Here Adam and Eve are put in the garden by God, and there the tempter comes and tempts them, and they fail miserably. Did they cling to the word of God, as we've been talking about? Did they hide God's word in their heart when Satan was coming at them with half-truths? With these lies, were they able to quote back to him scripture? Were they praying as they should be? No. Romans 5.14 says that Adam is a type, a foreshadowing of him who was to come. In Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, both show that Adam is a type of Jesus. Adam is the first type or shadow in that he sinned, but Jesus reverses the curse. Where Adam was tempted and failed, Jesus was tempted and passed. Where Adam brought sin into the world, Jesus died for sin. And so we see those two correlations in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Adam and Eve took their eyes off of God. They doubted God. They doubted his goodness. They doubted his word. 
they essentially said, our will be done. They saw that this fruit, at least it says Eve saw the fruit, and it was good to the eyes, and the enemy said, you can be like God, and you can know good and evil, and she rushed headlong into it. Scripture actually says she was quite deceived. She was deceived. I don't know what Adam was doing. Busy playing sports or something, like a guy. I don't know. It just came to my mind, but he should have been there with his wife. He should have pointed her back to the word of God. Should have been washing her in the word. The scripture just said right before that the two become one flesh. They were not one, and so they fell. So the first Adam fell, the second Adam, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47, the second Adam or the last Adam trusted in God, trusted in his goodness, trusted in his word, and he didn't say my will be done, as we'll read here in just a moment. Thy will be done. Your will be done, Lord. He didn't take his eyes off of God. He looked to God, his Father, all the more. So Matthew 26, let's read the text for today. Matthew 26, 36, if you'd like to join me. It says, then Jesus came with them, that's his disciples, Matthew 26, 36, to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Many of you know the word, the word for Gethsemane means oil press, wine press. Here's Jesus in the garden with these olive trees being pressed this was the place he often went to. Perhaps throughout his ministry, he, when he was tested, when he was tried, this was the place where he sought his father, our father, in preparation for this last time when he would go into this garden pleading with God to let this cup pass. First thing it says he does after having his disciples sit down is pray. He rushes into prayer. The Greek word is prosukomei. It's a long Greek word to exchange wishes, to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes and ideas for wishes as he imparts faith. And that's what we saw here. It's an exchange, an exchange going on. Father, this is my desire. This is my will. Let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, 
yet not my will, your will be done. That's what prayer is. We're bringing our wishes, so to speak, our wants, our desires at times to the Lord and saying, Lord, this is my desire, but what is your desire, Lord? What do you want for me? Jesus lived for the will of the Father. And what's going on when we pray? There's a lot going on, but prayer strengthens our faith. Prayer and faith are closely united throughout the scripture. Jude 1.20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. When the trials come, they test our faith. Would Jesus trust his father or would he turn back? Jesus is strengthening his faith and trust in the Father's will by praying to him, crying out to him, looking to him in preparation for the cross. And so he's crying out literally to his Father. What's amazing is at this point the disciples are still clueless. They don't know what's right around the corner. Jesus over and over again throughout his ministry told them, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of the elders and the leaders. I must be crucified. I must rise again. I must fulfill the scriptures. Do you remember the story or the passage in Matthew 16, 21, where Jesus tells his disciples this? I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. Somebody rebuked him. Peter. Peter, it says, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus and said, Jesus, God forbid that that happened to you. I love Jesus. Jesus then pulls him aside, it says, and rebuked him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is why I came down from heaven, Peter. I came to die for the sin of the world. Do not get in the way of that. Get behind me, Satan. Strong words. Jesus had his eyes set. I think it says in Isaiah, like Flint, his heart was set on Jerusalem. That's why he came. And he told his disciples this. He even said in Matthew 26, 32, right before the garden, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. After I've been raised. It's, it's as if it was done in his mind. The scripture would be fulfilled. Yet here in the moment, what theologians call the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, the struggle is real. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to die for the sins of the world. He knows he's going to be forsaken by his father in some mysterious way. The wrath of God poured out on, upon him. The sin of the world placed upon him. And so somewhere in his humanity and divinity was a struggle. In his humanity, he wanted to turn back. He didn't want to go forward. It was a real trial, a real temptation. Yet, his divine side knew, I must press on. I must go forward. I must trust the Father's plan. So that same spirit that was alive and well in Peter, that was trying to get him not to go to the cross, was alive and well in this garden. Just as it was alive and well thousands of years before in the original garden, tempting Adam and Eve. Satan always wants to thwart God's plan. He always wants to thwart God's will. He'll do whatever he can to sidetrack us. So Jesus goes where we all should go, and he prays what we should all pray. Verse 38 says he was deeply grieved. 
overwhelmed, it's translated in the NIV, to the point of death. He couldn't even but stand. It says he goes to his knees in verse 39. He fell on his face. Same Greek word that Satan in Matthew 4 said, fall on your face and worship me. I'll give you the kingdoms of heaven or of the earth. And so here Jesus falls on his face to his father. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. It's a posture of humility, a sign of complete surrender to the Father's plan, a sign of desperation, and a pleading for help to the one who could save. We're told in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, that's Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. And that's the mystery. Here's the Son of God, God in the flesh, yet relying so so heavily upon his Father, so needing his Father, so weak like us. And the scripture says he was crucified in weakness. He became weak so that when we're weak, we become strong in him. He's the forerunner. He goes before us. He's our model. These were agonizing prayers, prayers of fervor, Luke twenty two forty four says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Has that ever happened to you? We've all gone through trials, ever sweated drops of blood? Just <laughs> me neither. This was an agonizing time. Agonia is the Greek word there in Luke 22. Only time it's used in the New Testament. It's from agon, where we get agonizing. It's referred to in the Greek times in which it was written of the Olympic Games, the boxing match, the wrestling match, the agony that these Olympians went through for the prize, the struggle. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Agon, agonize, agonizomai. These Greek words describing the physical struggle that athletes go to describes the spiritual struggle that we go through in prayer, in supplication, in the trying times of life, in what Jesus depicts for us here as he's agonizing before the Father. An internal wrestling match of, I want to go to the cross, Lord, but everything in my human side wants to retreat, to go back, to cower away. So, it is a mystery. Some of what happened in the garden, some of what A lot of what happened in Jesus' life, being fully divine, fully man. Theologians spend their entire life studying the hypostatic union. Yet what we want to take from this passage, what I want to hone in on today, is the phrase, your will be done. Because Jesus prayed, I'm sure, many things in the garden. Can you not pray with me for an hour? is what he tells his disciples. They could have recorded a lot of things that Jesus prayed to the Father, but one thing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke want us to know is that he cried out to the Father, your will be done. Three times, remove this cup, Lord. Remove this cup, Father, if it's possible. He was persistent in this prayer. What was the divine response? There's no other way. You must go to the cross. You must die for the sin of the world. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no other name. 
There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If there was another way, then the response would have been, okay, you're my son, you're my beloved son, that's okay. You don't have to go to the cross. There was no other way. Scripture must be fulfilled. Paul says in the book of Galatians, if the law could save, if the law could make righteous, then Christ died needlessly. If there was any other way that we could be saved, Jesus didn't need to go forward. But of course, Jesus needed to go forward. He knew that. He preached that in his ministry. He taught that. He just got done telling his disciples he would rise, and so he moved forward. The spirit is willing. He told the disciples the flesh is weak. Peter, pray that you don't enter into temptation. What was about to happen to Peter right after this? He was about to be tempted and tried. Do you know Jesus? Yeah, you look like you know Jesus. He's outside warming his hands by that fire. The fire in the Greek, which is only used that term twice in the New Testament. The fire where Peter is warming his hands and the fire where Jesus is on the shore after the resurrection. And he calls Peter and the disciples from the water, come over here, Peter, restore, I'm restoring you, Peter, but teach my lambs, Peter. Teach my sheep, shepherd my flock. Here's a fire, Peter, does this remind you of anything? Same Greek word of the fire, he was warming himself as he's denying the Lord three times, three times at the end of Jesus' ministry, he restores Peter by that fire. I love you, Peter, don't worry. But I told you, Peter, pray that you won't enter temptation. Just as Jesus is praying before going to the cross, he's, he's getting ready for battle. He's in the battle, and he's getting ready for battle. Peter should be praying and getting ready for the temptation he's about to enter, but he's asleep. And this is for us, Right? What are we going through in life? What are we going to go through in life? Are we asleep like the disciples or are we awake? Are we watching? The scripture says to be on your guard. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When I played football, the saying was keep your head on a swivel. Always be looking around. You never know when some guy is going to come up beside you, next to you, and try to knock you on your backside. And that's the enemy. He's just looking around. He's looking for that sheep that's away from the fold, like that lion that's chasing after the zebra. Which one's easiest? The one that's just by himself, hanging out, head's not on a swivel, not looking around, not watching. Easy prey. And the disciples here were easy prey. Jesus said, strike down the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. They were scattered, and they were easy prey for the enemy. And Peter fell. By God's grace, he was restored. So we need to look to Jesus. He's our model. We need to be in prayer as he was. I want to talk about the phrase in a little bit more detail. Your will be done. Remember when Jesus told the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6? This is how you're to pray. Our Father, Matthew 6, 9, and 10. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how he taught the disciples to pray. This is what should undergird all of our prayers. Your will be done. Jesus lived for the will of the Father. It's what motivated him, energized him, fulfilled him, satisfied him. I love John chapter 4. The woman at the well. The text says that the disciples were going from Judea 
up to Galilee. It was about a 70-mile walk. Most of us would have trouble doing that, but that's what they did back then. They didn't have cars, right? If you're lucky, you had a donkey or a camel or something, I don't know. But they're walking, and the disciples are walking, and they could have walked around Samaria. That's what most people did. We don't want to go to Samaria. They're half-breeds. They're not really Jewish. They worship these foreign gods. They're, they're less than. We're not going to. We'll walk the extra 20 miles. We'll go around Samaria. Jesus said, no, we're going through. I got a, I got a plan. I'm a man on a mission. Remember, I live for the will of God. I have a divine appointment. So they go into town in Samaria. They've just walked about 30 or 40 miles. John 4, 6 says that Jesus is wearied. He's tired. And he says, give me a drink. Sits at this well, give me a drink. And this woman is actually more wearied, most likely, than Jesus at this point. She's living in sin. Jesus knows more about her than she knows about herself. Where where are the disciples? They went into town, the text tells us. They went to get food. But Jesus, he's on a divine appointment. He has a soul to save. He's conversing with this woman. They're going back and forth. He uses water as an illustration of the living water. And it takes her quite a while to get this. He's talking spiritual words. She keeps going back to the physical. Eventually, he shows her, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I'll give you living water. If you remember, she drops her water pot. She's no more concerned about that, her past life. She runs into town and tells everyone about Jesus. Why is this story significant? When the disciples come back with food, they say, Rabbi, eat. That's John 4, 31. John 4, 32, Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I love the disciples' response there. They look at each other. Who gave him food? We just got back with the food. You're over here sitting at this well. She gave you some water. What food are you talking about, Jesus? Who gave him food? And this is his response. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Man, that's an awesome verse. My food's to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You guys are working for the physical food. That's the first thing you guys thought about when we got to Samaria. We need to run into town and get food. My food's to do the Father's will. The Father's will is that all would be saved, that none would be lost, that all would come to repentance. My Father sent me to spread the gospel message, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, raise the dead, preach the gospel to the poor. I'm set on the Father's will. That's what I'm living for. I love it. And that's the model to the disciples over and over again. What's Jesus doing? Sneaking off into prayer, going to the quiet place to pray, to seek his Father's will. Father, what's your will? To seek and save that which is lost. Okay, I'm going to go back into town. I'm going to teach. I'm going to shepherd. I'm going to heal. And then I'm going to go back to the Father. What's your will, Lord? Okay, I'm back to work. That should be us. That's the model for us. Constantly seeking the Father. What's your will, Lord? Here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my low IQ, Lord. What do you want me to do? That's what I tell him. Here I am. Send me. And then I'm constantly going back to him. Am I in your will, Lord? Show me your will. And the scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and other places, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. So he's revealed much of his will to us to live holy lives, 
to walk righteously before him, to give thanks in all things, to seek and save that which is lost, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You continue on to John 5.30. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38. I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He repeated this over and over again. He lived for the Father's will. So here he is in the garden. One last time, the olive press. He's being pressed. He's being, he's in agony. He's in pain, yet he's resilient. He's strong, and he's proclaiming your will be done. The first Adam failed. The second Adam proved victorious. Perhaps there's many things, as I mentioned, that Jesus prayed, but that's the one thing I want us to remember today. These four words, your will be done. So in closing, it's one of the simplest prayers we can pray. Some of us think we just need to pray these exquisite prayers before the Lord. Just need to sound good. Jesus tells his disciples, he already knows what you need. Before you ask, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't go out in front of people and try to use these big words. Sometimes we can use big words because there's big, big words in the Bible. But where's our heart at? Is our heart just saying, your will be done, Lord? In my life, Lord, be glorified. It's a song we sang in church. I always go back to a lot of these songs, simple songs. In my church, Lord, be glorified. In my house, Lord, be glorified. At my job, that should be our prayer, that Christ will be glorified in all things. And it's an easy prayer, as I mentioned, but it's one of the hardest things we can pray and actually mean. Because God's will can take people to the throne of Israel, like King David. It could take you to being in second in command in Egypt, like Joseph. It could take you to conquer kingdoms, but God's will could also get you stoned to death, like Stephen in Acts chapter 6. It could get you, like Paul, beaten by rods three times and shipwrecked and stoned to death or left for dead and God's will can take us many places. Jonah didn't want to follow God's will. He ran. Peter earlier had a time, a hard time with God's will. Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. And Paul cried out three times, take this thorn. But Lord, if this is your will, then I'm okay. Your power is perfected in weakness the best place for you and I to be is right in the center of God's will. That's my prayer for us today. Lord, whatever I'm going through or will go through, may I be in your will. Your will be done, Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the model of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he went forward in the garden. We thank you that he was at the center of your will perfect, holy, blameless, pure, an example for us. Help us, Lord, to not only pray those words, but to mean them, to submit to your will, whatever that looks like, knowing that you love us, that you'll never forsake us, Lord, and that you'll only take us places, Lord, where you will be glorified and blessed when we submit to your will. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.